Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 95, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And I can't believe that we're on the first show of November already. You're not going to mention the C word, are you, Dan? I would. Oh, you mean Christmas? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, next month. I know, it's crazy. We've got to do our Let's Play, which every year, actually, we do a Let's Play and... Where was it? It was at Dan's house first, and that was at Joe's house, and we get drunk and play some games and then stick it on your YouTube channel. Yeah, so what we do is we sit down, we normally have a glass of glue wine yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or a few Christmas beers, and it's kind of like the Retro Hour Christmas party, and we film these every year, and we put them up on YouTube. So, yeah, first year we played Amiga CD32 games at my house. Yeah, last year we were using, uh, what was it, an Xbox? An Xbox. Yeah, but we were playing, like, Simpsons Arcade and stuff like that. That was great fun, wasn't it? So we need to do another one this year. I think Joe's probably having another Christmas party, because he normally does. But I think, you know, we do need suggestions on uh, maybe which games would be good. Like, oh, obviously, multiplayer games are the best aren't they yeah yeah that we can all sit and play at the same time you know so I mean there's so many good multiplayer games out there did we have a Streets of Rage 2 last time that was amazing have we played Golden Axe yet no no that would be a good one to do that's got to be on my list I think I was actually looking because my brother uh, came to stay with me a few weeks ago and we're looking for like really good retro multiplayer games so if anyone's got any suggestions because that would be really useful for our video totally uh, drop us a little tweet at Retro Hour UK or email show at theretrohour.com and then Obviously, after that video, we'll have the second annual Retro Hour Super Quiz. Oh, my God. So last year, it was the Retro Gamer magazine, Paul Jury, and the National Video Game Arcade versus me and Joe, and I completely <laughs> flopped it. Uh, yeah, I, I, the Amiga question I got wrong. So. <laughs> I think you've quite lived that down here. What was that question you got wrong last year? Oh, it was something about Jack Tramiel, and I just shouted. Uh, Shall we reminisce? Ravi and Joe. Atari was sold to the Tramiel Corporation in the 80s, but which company did Jack Tramiel found previously? Mm, uh, Chuck E. Cheese. Incorrect. What the? What the? <laughs> that's Nolan Bushnell. I um, thought he'd have something really good. Can I just say, you said there was no Amiga questions. That's the nearest to an Amiga uh, question. Nearest to an Amiga question. Because it's Commodore. Commodore is correct. Car oh, right. You know, you know Hang people scream at you now. Chuck E. Cheese, oh, Ravi. No, Chuck E. Oh, Cheese. I, this is why you guys have got to listen, and I'm going to reclaim the crown this year. Are you confident, are you? Well, I'm, okay. I'm going to put a bit of practice in. What did, this is your home turf. Yeah, totally. This is our studio. Yeah. You can't let the side down again. That's it. So hopefully you're going to get Oliver and uh, Paul Drury back in, and uh, they're going to be against you and Joe. The Retro Hour versus NBA and Retro Gamer magazine. The rematch is going to be on for 2017. Totally, and you've got some uh, quiz Questions to write there, haven't you? Yeah, God, it took me a while last year, but yeah, hopefully uh, that's going to be as much fun as it was last year because that show actually came out. It was between Christmas and New Year, I think we released that, wasn't it? And it was actually, looking back, it was one of our least listened to episodes just because I think people are travelling and all that, but yeah. I mean, if you didn't hear it last year, go back and check well, out that episode. It's, it's also the amount of Christmas specials that everyone else does because I find myself at Christmas in that week just sitting there watching specials from every single YouTube channel on this. So yeah. And then you've got to spend time with your family as well. So. Effort. Yeah. <laughs> and all your new stuff to play with as well. That's it. But, I mean, definitely do. It was so much fun last year. I mean, you can play along at home as well, which is a good thing about this. I, I had it on in the car, like, not that I listen to my own podcast every week, but, you know, it's yeah. like I was in the car actually with my mate and we were, like, playing along to it. He's like, oh, put your quizzing on, you did, and you actually got most of it right. So it is kind of fun for doing that as well. So it's going to be all about, obviously, retro gaming and technology and computers. You just want a game show, don't you, Dan, on 
on TV well, where you can we, just be, you know. We have discussed that, haven't we? Yeah, like, yeah. Maybe in 2018. Golden bomb, <laughs> boing balls or something like that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there's so much going on now that we are into November. Obviously, uh, you're still getting over Amiga 32 in Germany. Oh, yeah, I've uh, still got the taste of bratwurst and uh, beer in my mouth and it's a fantastic event. Yeah, it was in a really weird kind of hotel. I had a ski slope in the middle of it. Oh, wow. And then... <laughs> A whole kind of sports arena around the side. Far too healthy for me, you know? So I went off to Amsterdam afterwards and saw Marvin's kind of Amiga cave, which is just insane warehouse full of not just Amiga stuff. He's got, like, the original PlayStation, you know, the commercial displays yeah. that they used to have. And, yeah, it's just a heavenly place. I, I could have stayed there for a about two weeks. <laughs> this is but, Mar- Marvin Drugsma, our good friend. Oh, yeah. yeah. He, he, you know, he does find... He scores the most incredible stuff. I mean, we might mention this on, this on the show before, but he came to see us, didn't he, in Nottingham back in the summer. And then he was driving over to Birmingham to yeah. pick up like an Apple II or something. Apple Lisa, uh, I think. Yeah, yeah so yeah. really rare. So, And he was, I, I guess you'd never wanted to leave his warehouse, did you? No, no, not at all. <laughs> and today we've got a guest who is actually, actually, he lives very close to Amiga 30. And he didn't come. He lives an hour away <laughs> and he didn't come because he didn't know about it. And this is Romeo Knight. Now... A lot of you may know him by the name, but not by the person, because Romeo Knight basically made some amazing mod tunes and demo tunes back in the days, and he he wasn't aware. He wasn't aware that his tunes were that popular. And he kind of quit the whole scene and took up guitar. And then he came back to the scene later, and people were just dropping to their knees. We are not worthy, you know. Yeah, and that was like, what, 20 years later nearly? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And he was just amazed that people are still interested in the tunes. And there's some fantastic stuff, you know, Cream of the Earth, Beat to the Pulp. These are like legendary Amiga tunes. And using groups like, what, TRSI and Red Sector? Yeah. Legendary Amiga demoed groups. And also a bit on the cracking scene as well. They're often using crack throws, weren't they? Maybe without Yeah, and he also made a few commercial titles as well. And he's, he's... He's been everywhere, Romeo Knight, and now he works for kind of Mercedes and Coca-Cola doing all the official promos and adverts. So, I mean, I think our episode's about the Amiga demo scene, and and we're going to touch on the C64 scene a bit in here as well, because his legends, you know, his heroes are like Rob Hubbard and Chris Hillsbeck, aren't they? Um, Both of which we've had on this show before. But these episodes are always really interesting. They always get a really good response as well, so I think, you know, you're going to enjoy this one, just because there is something very very romantic almost about the scene, I think. That's it, and we like to bring you people that haven't been in the scene for a while, and that kind of, you know, people are like... Oh my God, I can't believe that guy's on the show. So. Yeah. People that haven't been interviewed all that much, it's sometimes good to just find them, isn't it? And totally. I don't know how you do it, but you always manage to track them down. <laughs> oh, you usually go from my playlist when I was a kid and go, Oh my God, he was amazing. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you, know, you know, when you used to get like cracked rows and stuff? Yeah. You don't write to the old addresses that are on there, do you? We should do that, you know. We should we should ring up all the boards and see if we can still connect. That would be good. Some little old lady in Finland picks up like, what? Yeah. Is this Quartex? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Romeo Knight, what a legend. He's going to be our special guest on the Retro Hour in around 25 minutes from now. Now, obviously, we're getting towards the end of 2017. That will mean, come January, we'll have been doing the Retro Hour podcast over two years. I can't believe it. That's that's crazy. That's longer than a lot of my relationships. <laughs> <laughs> longer than about four of your relationships put together, isn't it? Um, but yeah, it's like, we love doing this show. We come in and we've done this every week. And to be fair, when we first started doing this, we just did like a little test episode. We thought, is it going to go down well? You know, we'll Yeah, you know, when you first suggested it, actually, we were doing YouTube videos. Yeah. And Dan, we were just walking along and Dan's like, oh, maybe we should do a podcast. 
I was thinking, podcast, man, what's this guy on about? We're going to get no listeners. Yeah. And, you know, this format's been more successful than anything we've done, really. It, and, you know, we love doing this show week in, week out. Obviously, it does take time to do a weekly retro gaming podcast and to get these guests as well, get it edited, get to events like Amiga 32 Play. We've got Play coming up next year as well. And we just want to say thank you so much if you have made a donation into the running of the Retro Hour podcast at any time during 2016, 2017. And if you'd like to keep the show going throughout 2018, we're up for it, yeah? Oh, totally, yeah. We're going to keep it going anyway, but having your donations just makes it so much smoother, means we can get much better quality guests, and we can keep this professional high standard. You don't want me and Dan in a shed next year, you know? We haven't got enough money for a shed in the, in the kitty. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> it. But it just, I mean, it's always nice if we don't have to fork out, out of our own pocket to do the show, isn't it? You know? Yeah, so totally. Anything we get, any donations that we get into it, obviously all go back into the running of it. Every penny does. We absolutely guarantee that. And if you'd like to make a donation, there's a little tip jar that you'll find on the front page of our website, either by PayPal or Bitcoin. Just go to our page, theretrohour.com. It takes like, what, five seconds? Yeah, and that can be any currency. So if you're a listener around the world and you want to just shove any amount in it, we'll just convert it. So and we do, we do like our listeners from abroad as well. It gives us a chance to uh, try and pronounce their names as well, which is yeah, awesome. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's probably the most entertaining part of the show at the moment. <laughs> I'm sure some people just make those names up. No. <laughs> but listen, we really appreciate it, guys. And also, if you do make a donation, that will earn you your place in the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Now, this week, we want to say thank you so much to Christopher Zaremba. Dan Ryan, Damien Stokoe, and Sashka Wienard. Thank you very much for your donations. Really, really appreciated that, guys. And also, you can leave one. All you've got to do is head to our website, theretrohour.com. Right then, lots of stories to get through this week. You know, early first-person shooters. I yeah. love them games. You know, stuff like, um, obviously, when Doom first came out, that changed the world, that game. Totally, and that, and even Wolfenstein changed the world. You know, I was I was playing on Wolfenstein on my mum's old Amstrad PC yeah. clone thing. Yeah, and it, it was oh, I was just amazed at how smooth it ran. Did you have the little? Uh, did you have a sound card on the PC speaker? PC speaker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that went right through you. That sound. Yeah. See, I remember seeing it was in um, you know Ryman's the stationery store. Yeah. That's when I first saw Wolfenstein 3D. I was in there and like, <laughs> yeah, that, my is, that is so random, you know, killing Nazis in the stationery <laughs> store. Yeah, you know. And I was, my mate was playing with an Apple Newton. Okay, wow, well, yeah. Or any of us being like 11 What or a weird week that must have been. <laughs> <laughs> but that was like, yeah, Saturday afternoon, we just used to walk around town when we were kids just because we got bored. But I've kind of been rediscovering a lot of kind of those early FPS games that I maybe, you know, either didn't get around to finishing back in the day or didn't have powerful enough hardware. For example, um, a few weeks ago, I had my Sega Saturn set up, and I've, I've got modded Saturn. So I was playing um, like Heretic and Hexen. I've been playing oh, recently yeah, on there. Oh, cool. yeah, Brilliant old school games. Um, on the my Amiga 4000, I've been playing um, Alien Breed 3D, the, the, the second one. Yeah. yeah t- is it Tower Assault, the second one? I, I, no, the Killing Grounds, uh, Killing Grounds, Killing Grounds that's yeah, that the one. one. Yeah. Which I didn't have a machine that was powerful enough back in the day to play it, but actually on the Amiga with the Vampire, that runs really nicely. Finally, yeah, I don't, Blood. I love that game, Blood. If you ever played that one, I don't know. Yeah, I don't think I really played that brutal. one. You had like sticks of dynamite and you run around and just light them and chuck them at people. Oh, it's great. <laughs> Those early FPS games are something quite. You look at them; they're a bit creepy. I think. Oh, yeah, they're, they're all creepy, but they've all got a very similar style as well because they're kind of based around the same engines. Like, yeah. I, I don't know if you remember the later ones that they had, like Redneck Rampage. Yeah. Yeah, and that 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 had a kind of real similar style to the early Duke Nukem stuff. Yeah, well, Duke Nukem 3D was obviously amazing. Quake, I love the original two Quake games as well. There's one thing I found, though, 
which is I've, I've had to kind of find my early FPS legs again. Yeah. Because when I first started playing them, I mean, my God, I was playing, um, I think it was Gloom on the Amiga Gloom Deluxe. God, I thought I was going to puke after about 10 minutes of playing it. <laughs> yeah. You have to get used to the frame rates, definitely. And a lot of these were based on one engine. So this was an engine by a guy called Ken Silverman, yeah. and he was 13 when he started. Yeah. And he, he made this labyrinth monster maze that was kind of based on, you know, um, Wolfenstein and stuff. And then that, he actually got help from John Romero at one point. And then that turned into the Duke engine. So Ken's build engine is still, you know, one of the uh, kind of massive legacy systems going. Well, do you remember Jurassic Park, the video game? Which version? Because I remember <laughs> on every console and every computer system, it was totally different, wasn't yeah. it? It was a platformer on the Mega Drive, right? I think, was it like a side-scroller on the Mega Drive? I think? Yeah. On the Amiga, it was like an overhead like um, Chaos Engine, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was, but then it had some first-person shooter sections. And I remember the SNES had a first-person shooter, but it was like in a stamp. You know, the size yeah, yeah. of the screen was <laughs> tiny. But that was, I mean, you're talking, that game came out, was it 92, 93? Yeah. So that yeah. was quite early. I mean, that was, you know, pre, I don't know if it predated Doom, but it must have been around the same time. Mm. I guess it was probably influenced by Wolfenstein and Doom coming out. But obviously, hardware, especially console hardware, wasn't really powerful enough to do FPS games without any kind of extra hardware. Obviously, you had the Super FX chips and you had the, yeah. you know, the um, Mega. But they uh, were just a little bit too slow, weren't they? But somebody was obviously a big fan of the uh, SNES version of Jurassic Park because they've actually done an update of it, taking the original textures, oh, cool. improving them and basing it on the Duke Nukem 3D engine. Ah, oh, excellent. Yeah, so it's on the build engine as well. And this looks really good, actually, because the quality of the uh, kind of import of the textures really works well. And I've not played the original, so I don't really know the difference, but... Um, from what I can see, it's full screen and it runs smoothly, which yep. the SNES version doesn't. Well, this is called Visitor Center. Um, oh, cool! Yeah, good name. And you can uh, you can download this and give it a play. I mean, I'll, I'll, sound effects. Oh, that's quite dark. Yeah. <laughs> and look at that! I mean, it does actually look really slick. I mean, this couldn't have run on a SNES in its current form. You could imagine it on like a PC back then, or maybe something like a Jaguar might have handled it. But well. I noticed one thing as well, that the gun, the gun in it is in all of the Jurassic Park games, which is the electricity gun. Yeah. That's like the consistent theme throughout all of these kind of games. So I'm really glad that they've implemented that, you know. Well, at the moment, this is kind of a, a short game. It's still a beta, but they reckon that they're going to, um, you know, enhance this and put a lot more into it as well. Um, but you can download it and give it a try if you want to uh, check it out. And it runs on uh, a PC and a Mac at the moment. So it's good that they took those SNES kind of textures and upgraded them as well, because there will be people that obviously were a fan of that and maybe want to play like a new updated version of that. So Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, and maybe you can like add textures of other games. <laughs> Duke in there or something. You know? Duke versus Jurassic Park. Yeah. That'd be a fight I'd love to see. Yeah, Duke dinosaur. <laughs> now, if we're talking like, you know, that era, the 16-bit days, um, there was one thing about trying to get your, your games on the Super Nintendo or the Mega Drive. You'd have to get past Sega and Nintendo. And you'd probably have to pay them for the carts as well, wouldn't you? There's, remember, there's a few companies that tried to... Didn't EA get around it somehow? With those carts with the yellow tabs on them. Yes, and Wisdom Tree, who were the ones that made those really strange religious games. Yeah. They'd have it so you could, it, it, you'd get the original cart and you'd kind of, you'd plug it in the top of their cart and they'd, that would use the official chip and then it would kind of bypass it. So didn't, you'd didn't, end up getting a Sonic and Knuckles style kind of tower. 
Didn't Codemasters do that with a game or two as well? I I'm think sure so, they yeah, did, yeah. yeah. So there was a few cheeky tricks. Uh, but obviously, you know, you'd have to get your game through, um, like, Sega, for example, their verification process. And you remember on the box, you'd get the um, official seal of quality, wouldn't you? Yeah, and that was good because it kept the uh, kind of market from getting saturated with crap like the Atari did and the Amiga did and (laughs) many other systems did because they didn't have that quality seal. Well, Nintendo, I think, brought that in in the 80s. It was a response, wasn't it, to the video game crash of North America because, like you said, there was that much crap out there. Right, keep our standards high. Yeah, exactly. And Sega did the same, which, you know, as a games player, that was really useful. But you can imagine if you're a developer they must do some really stringent testing. And if you've got deadlines to meet and like they're coming back and they're being like, actually, there's glitches in this game. Yeah, yeah. Or you, you want to make a, a violent title. Yeah. And then you've got Nintendo going, no, you've got to have green blood. <laughs> yeah, like Mortal Kombat and yeah. stuff, I remember. Well, this is quite an interesting article. This is on Kotaku and it's, um, it's actually a video that they've done with their Polygon. And it's about, um, you know, Traveller's Tale. Their founder, yeah. John Burton. He's talking about little ways that they had of getting around Sega's official seal of quality and their standards. Ah, okay. So what Sega would do is they would be really, really stringent and they would have testers, you know, playing the games 24 hours a day. Any little crash in the game, for whatever reason, they wouldn't approve it. So if you want to get a game out for Christmas, then that might ruin your deadline, for example. Yeah, because you, you, you may have rushed the development to try and get it out. and yeah, Which is a bit cheeky, but yeah. you know, obviously <laughs> you're going to lose a lot of money if you don't get it out by you know, Christmas time, for example. Well, he talks about, for example, in um, 1994's Mickey Mania, and also they did um, Sonic 3D Blast as well Cool. in uh, 1996. So what they did is, and this is actually quite sneaky, so in Mickey Mania, when the game crashed, instead of bringing up an error message, they actually coded the game so what it would do instead is, when it hit an error, it would throw the playtesters into a random level of the game. And they kind of claimed that was a hidden time warp. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. So you're kind of in the crash room, essentially, yeah. yeah. So and they did the same with Toy Story as well, apparently, claiming it was a feature, not a bug. And uh, with Sonic 3D Blast, apparently, to, again, to disguise it as a legitimate game, gameplay feature, what it would do is it would uh, redirect it to a level select screen and uh, congratulate players on finding a secret in the game. So. <laughs> That's really smart, actually. Yeah. yeah, totally. Oh, they've got loads of secrets in this game. <laughs> yeah. So, because, uh, you know, everyone talks now about how many games come out with, like, patches and all that kind of thing, and everyone gets a bit kind of dewy-eyed and a bit yeah. rose-tinted spectacles. Oh, back in the day, games never came out with bugs. But they did. I mean, I remember games that you couldn't finish because they were that full of bugs. No, I remember games that you could only finish with bugs as yeah. well. So, <laughs> yeah. So that's pretty cool they did that, though. And it's nice of him, you know, to come clean after all this time and uh, admit the little tricks and secrets they did. Yeah, the kind of hidden developer story there. Now, Prince of Persia was obviously an amazing game. We've talked about this on the show before. One of the first games that had rotoscoping. Yeah, which was kind of tracing over... Uh, somebody, and then animating it, wasn't it, really? Yeah, a real-life actor, and yeah, they yeah. trace his, his figure. I mean, I remember seeing that, first of all, on like a, I think it was like a black-and-white monochrome CGA PC. Yeah. I couldn't understand how it worked. You know, I was just like, how can this be so smooth? And, you know, it was insane. I thought they, that they were digitally capturing them and then not just tracing. <laughs> well, there was an article. This is, um, I was reading it the other day, funnily enough. Um, I found an old issue of um, ST Format Magazine. Okay. Which is like the Atari ST's kind of mainstream yeah. mag here in the UK. And they had, I mean, I think it must have been, I, I got given it by someone years ago because I didn't have an Atari ST back in the day. And there is actually a feature in there about 
there's a review of um, Prince of Persia on the Atari ST, but they also go into how they did the rotoscoping and everything. And they're showing it actually being drawn in the paint package. But again, they've got pictures of the actor and they're doing it pixel by pixel. Wow. So yeah. it must took ages to do all those frames. Because it did look so smooth, you know, and there wasn't a pixel out of place. So yeah. you're totally right. It must have uh, been a laborious process. But obviously you're thinking maybe to kind of handle that kind of animation, a system must have had pretty high specs for the day. You wouldn't imagine something like the, the Acorn BBC could handle it, for example. No, no. Well, it turns out it can. Now, this is on um, star.org.uk, which is a, it's a forum all about Acorn computers and emulators. And someone on there has actually started a port of Prince of Persia to the BBC Master. <laughs> wow. That is, you know, the specs of that system, you would never think that you could run Prince of Persia on it. Well, the Master was a bit more powerful than the, um, the BBC Micro. Ah, okay. So yeah. I, I, I'm a bit confused about my BBC models, you see. Well, this one had, I mean, I don't know if you remember, it was kind of the bigger one with the two cartridge slots on the top of it as well. Yeah. And yeah. had a bigger keyboard. And we had, we had maybe two of those in my school. But they've actually, I mean, I'll put a video in this week's show notes at theretrohour.com. But essentially, what this guy's done, and, you know, he's put this on the forum asking for a bit of help, he's actually ported over the Apple II version to the BBC Master. Ah, okay. And if you watch his YouTube video, the animation looks pretty slick. It's a bit flickery, but... All the elements are there, and they've got the full fluid, you know, motion of the character in there too. Even like the tiles moving and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, all that's in there as well. I mean, obviously, it's lower colours than the like the Amiga version or the Atari ST, for example. But um, yeah, I think this is amazing. I always love seeing games on systems you didn't think could previously handle it. Yeah, totally. It's it's just like kind of demaking it, but still keeping the soul of the game. It's real skill, and it makes me want a BBC. Yeah, yeah, you know, BBC's one thing that we actually have not covered that much. and Well, we've hardly covered it at all. Yeah. And it's the main computer, isn't it, for our whole kind of childhood. And, <laughs> that was a machine yeah. that got me into computers, yeah, really, to so be fair. We should, we should really get some BBC episodes coming up, I think. I've got a Acorn Electron. Yeah. That was at the cut-down version of the BBC. I remember, I think, my auntie gave me that for free or something in the mid-90s. Unfortunately, though... I found it again last year. My folks were moving house in the attic and it, I'd neglected it and I, it was all rusty inside. It I'm going to get a BBC. This is my thing. I think, I think they're quite cheap as well, actually. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, again, it's like anything I imagine they've kind of gone up over the years. But I got an Acorn um, Archimedes for not much, only about 70 quid off eBay. Okay. A while wow. back. So I think that that is going to be a system that I want to get back into because for pure nostalgia. And it's one of those machines, I mean, we see them at shows. There's yeah, always one at Play yeah. Expo or something, for example. But it's a machine I really would like to sit down with and kind of rediscover those games that were the first I'd, thing I'd, I'd love played. one of those later Acorns, you know, because we got one at school and it had CD-ROM and everything. Oh, the Risk it. PCs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it was so cool. They were sexy machines, weren't they? Now, the Sega Saturn is obviously an amazing console. Oh, fantastic. And Underrated. And a... And, and a game that seems to be quite fantastic actually has uh, been released on ebay now a lot of unreleased games i'm sure they're all sitting around for the sake of saturn because that was kind of a system that you know third party developers started to abandon once they realized it was really hard to program for yeah. <laughs> so they there's a lot of these games that have kind of appeared but this one's just appeared and it's called armed and it's sold for two thousand five hundred dollars which is not that much actually um, for a prototype, unreleased, holy grail kind of game. Yeah. And this looks like a platformer, but... Um, I Graphic, don't know, graphics look amazing, actually. Yeah, I don't know if you'd seen a Clockwork Knight. Yeah. 
before, which was the kind of one where it'd have the, it, what did they call it, 2.5D? It was like rendered side-scrolling. Yeah, yeah rendered side-scrolling. And uh, this has got exactly that as well. It just It's fantastic. There's a few kind of dodgy screenshots, and I don't know how complete the game is. But um, it just it's amazing that this has kind of appeared online and that there's nothing about it anywhere else. <laughs> well, Some guy's just had a copy in his house or something. This looks like it's a shooter, actually, isn't it? It reminds me a bit of like Turrican, maybe, in 3D by the looks of these screenshots that we've Yeah, and here. it looks very urban as well. But to me, it looks kind of PS1 graphics, you know. And they were very close to each other, weren't they? Just sat in the PS1s. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they were only like, not even a year apart, I don't think, really, depending on where you were in the world. But I mean, I'm looking at this article here on our retrocollect.com and they reckon that it's quite in the vein of um, a a game called Phoenix 3 on the 3DO, which I think I've I've got a CDR of that, I've downloaded it, but I haven't really played it much. So it's kind of pre-rendered visuals. Makes it look, like you said, that 2.5D kind of, you know, style. Yeah, yeah, and it's uh, from Interplay as well. Yeah. So, you know, it's quite a big name. And the sellers even added the scan of a magazine article previewing it. So I hope whoever's bought this is going to dump it. Yeah, that would be cool. Or they, they haven't just received a blank CD. <laughs> <laughs> of course they wouldn't. <laughs> Keep an eye on that eBay feedback. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, that's the thing. is, It's when you find stuff like this. It's all well and good a collector buying it, you know, because... Some people have got more money to put into the hobby than other people have, for mm-hmm. example. You know, maybe I, I, I personally couldn't drop two and a half grand on an on a unreleased game. No, <laughs> but, totally not. That's kind of why I'm selling my CD32 collection at the moment, because it got so expensive. I was like, yeah, I'm going to sell it. <laughs> Is it when you got to the stage where you thought, right, I'm never going to get the complete set? It's when I got to the stage when people were asking for £500 for a game. Yeah. And I was like, I'm not willing to do that. That's a car. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so... That's it is. I mean, I, I'm the same as as you in that regard with the Atari Jaguar. I've got to the stage now where I've got most of the the usual titles. Now I'm getting to like the Atari Karts stage yeah. where you're talking two, three thousand quid for a game. Yeah, I'm like, it, it, I ain't going to drop that on a, on a crappy car. But then the thing Atari. is, during this whole time I've been collecting, the whole market's gone up. Yeah. So now the ones that I'm selling, I'm making back on them, which is good. And you'll put it back into hardware, Ravi. Not a car. Oh, totally. Yeah. <laughs> so if anyone you know. Maybe you are listening and you've bought that, you know, long-lost Sega Saturn game. Dump the ROMs so other people can enjoy it. Don't oh, just totally. give it to yourself. Now, do you like keyboards? I, it's weird, you know, keyboards, because they're the kind of system that's not changed. It's like paper, you know, it lasts for so long. The QWERTY keyboard has been around since, you know, the very start. So it's, it's kind of mad that we're still using them, to be honest. You'd think, like, Voice Assist would have taken over by now. When I was a kid, I thought people would be going around talking into their Star Trek little receivers and, you know, there'd be no keyboards, there'd be no paper in the office. Yeah, with you, Siri, we know that a key- it's not going to replace a keyboard, is it? But you're right, I mean, if anything, keyboards, I think, have kind of... The technology has gone backwards in a way. Yeah, because even on your beautiful iPhone with your uh, touchscreen, you're still bringing up a keyboard, aren't you? <laughs> and I, oh, my mate, my, my mate Paul's really, you know, he insists that he can sit in, like, you know, a meeting or, like, a lecture, and he can sit there and he can actually make notes on an iPad touchscreen keyboard. And I make so many mistakes on those. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. I, I, the one design I did see that was a bit different was on the touchscreen where you swipe around. Oh, was that like, um, yeah. Yeah, and you swipe and you kind of get a few of the letters and then it'll make up the word from that. And that, that seemed to be quicker for me for a while. But Was that Windows yeah. Phone, did it? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Okay. Or, or Google, you can get a Swift it okay, uh, yeah. on the Android phones. And 
Again, I mean, there's nothing like a physical keyboard, especially if you're going to be doing proper word processing or even gaming, you know, if, if you're a PC gamer. You know what I hate? I hate, like, thin keyboards at the moment because I, I love the yeah, I love the big <laughs> chunky keys that you can hit because the thin ones on the laptop, it doesn't feel like you're typing anything. When I type or when I'm gaming, I want to bang, hit it, you know, <laughs> get that command in there as fast as possible. You want some tactile response. Yeah, totally. And, I mean, you look, if you go on any gaming forum for, like, modern PC gaming, the amount of gamers that are getting old mechanical keyboards, and there are manufacturers that make mechanical keyboards again now, with yeah, the buckle a, springs. Yeah, a lot and, of the high-end gaming PC keyboards are actually still mechanical. Yeah. Even ones with, like, OLED keys and stuff, it's still mechanical underneath. You know? They're expensive as well, aren't they? Oh, yeah. But obviously, I mean, if you're talking about, like, the all-time you know, the holy grail of mechanical keyboards. It would be the IBM model keyboards, wouldn't it? The Model M, the Model F. Yeah, totally. And I only know about this through watching LGR and his yeah. kind of like keyboard porn videos. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like, you know, especially that sound he has at the beginning, you know, when he's typing yeah. out lazy game reviews. Yeah. That is obviously like an old IBM keyboard. And they're kind of, you know, they're the holy grail of like proper purest keyboard fans, which, which do exist. I was looking the other day at, because um, the Amiga keyboards... There was like a certain cherry switched model of those on the Amiga 2000 and the 500, the very early ones. And they're kind of the, the ones that everybody is kind of like says they're some of the nicest keyboards ever. Well, it's weird because you think about it. Now I work in the office at work and if I cough or fart, everyone hears that, right? <laughs> <laughs> Back in the days, you'd have keyboards. Yeah. You'd have the dot matrix printer. Yeah, it's, it's, it's totally changed. You know, it might have been quite noisy living next to an office before. Or typewriters before that as well. Yeah. <laughs> but because there is such a demand for the old um, IBM model keyboards with the mechanical buckling springs, uh, these have been out of production since the 1980s. And obviously, you know, there weren't even PS2 then. It was like, it was 80 plugs or something before, whatever it oh, was. Oh, yeah, that big one. fat din. Yeah, that was it. Yeah, the big, big plugs with like a few pins inside. What they're actually doing now, though, is... There is a short production run at the moment. They've actually remade these keyboards to the original spec. Wow. Now, if you go to modelfkeyboards.com, they're saying, you know, they consider this the best keyboard ever. And this is really a project to recreate, you know, and be really faithful to those original IBM keyboards. So if you want to get a new one rather than uh, going on eBay and finding one from the 1980s, you can actually, you know, for a limited time, pick up one of these um, old keyboards again. I'm really interested in this for gaming, actually, because I've had a real problem with keyboards. The fact is that uh, they don't print the letters yeah. as well these days as well. So I've been playing, and my dad came to use my PC the other day. He couldn't type an email. I touch type, but all the letters have been rubbed off my keyboard because I've been typing right. so much, <laughs> especially around the WASD keys and all of that. He was just trapped for ages, you know. Well, they're saying, you know, we talked about the Model M a minute ago. This is actually the Model F, which was a predecessor to the Model M. And the Model M was actually the cheaper version of this keyboard. Okay, so this is like the high-end uh, bad boy. Well, this has over five pounds of steel and other metals inside it. So oh. This is going to be a keyboard you'll pass on to your grandkids. How are they going to do it? Is, is the output going to be USB or is it going to be um, a traditional PS2? Good question. I'm not sure, actually, but I imagine it's going to interface with um, modern machines because uh, PS2 does seem to be the standard, doesn't it, still? You buy, I mean, we've got a bunch of new machines upstairs here, USB 3 on them and all that, but they've still got PS2 connectors on them. Yeah, and I've noticed you can even make a custom serial number on it. 
you know, 007 or whatever you want. So, I mean, there are obviously keyboard purists who would like kill to get their hands on one of these. And I'm looking down the specs here, actually. It has got USB on it, too. Cool. Um, it's $325, which is quite a lot. But if this is the best keyboard in the world, then it's pretty reasonable. <laughs> and it probably would last you 30 years, you know, at least. So yeah. It looks like it's made out of very good materials. And uh, I don't know how these are for RSI or efficient stuff like that, but I'm sure you can get some gel pads and, you know. <laughs> no one cared about that stuff in the 80s, no, did they? No. Yeah, be a man and bash away on those keys. Yeah. <laughs> so if you want to find out more about that, I'll ship that in this week's show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, obviously, you know, talking about that era, uh, you might have used your uh, old Model F keyboard back in the day to hammer away at some adventure games. Oh, yes, and there's no better company, well, in my opinion, uh, than Sierra uh, for these kind of classic adventure games. And this article is quite old, but we're going to link it anyway because it's got some fantastic ones that have arrived on Steam. Okay. Which is really useful because I've been basically, I'm obsessed with Police Quest. Police Quest was one of the best games for me. I used to have the version on the Amiga, my mate would have it at home, and we had obviously no manual because it was a, <laughs> a, a legally obtained game. Yeah, and, figure uh, it all out yourself. Yeah, so every command, like open space door, you'd have to figure out. And we, we'd play it and then we'd come and meet at school and go, how far did you get? What, did you, what level did you get onto this time? And it was just fantastic. And the Police Quest series for me was one of the most accurate ones. And it went on to... I think it was Police Quest 4 or 5. They were not, was it like, went into the mid-2000s, didn't it? Like, yeah, it yeah. got really dark at one yeah. point. And then it had like SWAT afterwards, which was a full kind of Police Quest simulator. And, you know, you'd have a SWAT team and it would have FMV intros of going into people's houses and stuff like that. And I've been trying to get them to work on DOSBox. And it is a bloody nightmare. Seriously, the later ones are so hard to get working. Well, the later ones kind of... Cause I remember the earliest ones, like, they kind of looked a bit like the... Like Leisure Suit Larry, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, they, like they were on the Scum engine, basically. Yeah. Well, no, that was Scum was um, Sierra... Uh, LucasArts, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah, but it works on Scum VM. Oh, does it? Okay. So it's yeah, there, yeah, okay. so you can, you can get that far. But the problem is, the later ones kind of went into some strange Windows 95 kind yeah. of thing. The, like, 3D kind of isometric... Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. And then later on it was FMVs and even, you know, kind of darker stuff. But all of this should be available online at the moment. So they've actually ported these. There's going to be 17 of them, including the Police Quest series, Quest for Glory Collection. Um, Gabrielle Knight's in there too. Uh, you know, Pretty much all those classic games that you're going to remember. Um, even the King's Quest series too is going to be on there. So I think it's great that they're kind of looking into the archives and updating these for people just to play simply again. Oh, yeah, totally. And that's the thing, you know, I'm going to download SWAT and just play it straight away because I've not played that for so long. Yeah. And it's it's quite cheap, you know, $5.99. And apparently these have been on GOG.com already, um, which is, is GOG kind of like the DRM-free kind of alternative to Steam, isn't it? But it's not as popular. No, no, it's not. And, you know, you can get the bundle here. Yeah. And the bundle is £127. <laughs> it's just absolutely ramped with so many titles. And it's also got a lot of the modern versions. Yeah. So it's an easy way to do it, though, in the, rather than tracking it all down, trying yeah, to get to work it. If you, you want to get every single one and you've got uh, 120 quid to spare. <laughs> well, Christmas is coming up. I mean, a little yeah, steam yeah. badge here would be uh, quite good in your Christmas stocking. So, uh, yeah, well, we're, obviously, we, we always keep an eye on any of these classic series that are getting re released for the modern day. Now, Sonic R. Do you remember that game on the Sega Saturn? 
I remember seeing it and thinking, what the F is this? <laughs> and um, playing it in Beatty's, uh, the hobby oh, shop. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, and uh, falling off the side and then kind of going, Sega's dead, Sonic's dead and walking out of there. It was the game that really nobody wanted because everybody wanted a 3D Sonic game on the Saturn. Well, that was it. I thought, I thought everyone wanted a 3D Sonic game, but they wanted it about a year before the Saturn <laughs> released that one. And then when I came out and went, oh, they've finally done it, I was like, looks crap. It was, a racing, <laughs> yeah. it was a racing game, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. But the thing is, I mean, it does have its fans. And I think the biggest problem with Sonic R is... Most people played it with Sonic, and he's actually the worst character to play it in. Okay, so yeah, because that was the one they were demoing in the store. Yeah. I play with Knuckles usually, and he's a lot better. Okay, easier to control. Yeah, a lot yeah. Easier. yeah, Sonic's one of the hardest to control in that game. <laughs> and actually, there are certain... I mean, it's been a while since I played it, but I remember you'd think, you know, if you were kind of accelerating the whole time, it'd be better, but actually it's better to take some little bit slower of the game rather than yeah. rushing through it all. And I mean, it, it is an acquired taste, but it does have its fans. And it was kind of... Like I said, everyone wanted a proper Sonic the Hedgehog game. But it well, was that was it, yeah, because interim... they released a Sonic Jam yeah. as well, didn't they? And later on, I guess with Sonic Adventure, they kind of got that 3D thing down and sorted. But, yeah. you know, even with 3D Blast and stuff, it was a bit mental, wasn't it? You know. Well, looking back to the development of Sonic R is quite interesting. And there's actually a very early prototype that's been released onto YouTube Somebody's done a little um, kind of demonstration of version 0.3 of um, Sonic R. Okay. And it kind of shows, I mean, if you're interested in the development of the game and where it came from, this is really interesting to look at. I mean, essentially what it is, you get Sonic the Hedgehog who's not animated and he just flies through the level. Which, so right, um, he's just a stiff Sonic. <laughs> he's just going... Brah. Yeah, and all, I think the only character that's in it is Sonic himself, so you get okay. Sonic flying along behind Sonic. And there's a lot of, like... Do you remember in early 3D games, the, if you kind of went out the, the realms of the polygons, you'd get kind of gaps in it. And yeah, the yeah, or, 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 or the, there'd be a tear. Yeah, a lot of tearing in <laughs> yeah. this. But, I mean, it kind of just show you the... Um, you know, they had a lot of the kind of free-roaming element of the game already implemented in this very early version. And looking at it, I mean, there's, you know, a lot of stuff's not in here, like water collisions not implemented or anything like that. Um, there's some, like, random big red squares that just kind of appear in the <laughs> middle of the game as well. And, you know, the whole floor was kind of like a, a hardware play field. That was yeah, and they've kind of got early, early versions of the textures there as well. Yeah, so yeah. it's interesting just to see where their head was in the development of kind of, you know, this was really... You know, a lot of people didn't like it, but it was kind of the early stages of the 3D Sonic game. And obviously, Sonic Extreme was meant to come out, you know, around the same time or a bit later. But I think it's, you're probably never going to get a sequel to Sonic R because it's generally not considered a great game. But even though this is very rough around the edges, it's quite interesting to look at where their heads were. Yeah, no, it's cool to see how these kind of things develop because, you know, especially if you're a demo watcher of the old kind of demos, which would be like coding examples, you'd you'd see kind of like, oh, look, there's a tunnel there. Maybe if they put a thing there, it'd be like wipeout, you know? And it's it's quite similar with this, you know? You've got your stationary thing, but you can see the potential with everything. And even looking at bits in the game that didn't make it into the final version or maybe parts of the game that are maybe still in there that oh, are yeah. for, for any Sonic fan, yeah. this could be great. Absolutely. So if you want to watch our video, definitely worth a look, even if you're just, you know, the slightest bit curious. I really enjoyed watching it, actually. I'll put that in this week's show notes at theretrohour.com. 
Right then, well, thank you for checking out episode number 95 of the Retro Hour podcast. Uh, If you do listen on any of your favourite podcast clients, please do keep those reviews coming in. Keep those five-star ratings. It helps us get to the top of the charts. And, of course, you can drop us an email as well. We haven't done emails for a few weeks, have we? No, we haven't. We haven't. Uh, Show at theretrohour.com. Yeah, emails about anything you like, and we'll try and read it out next week's show. Yeah, if it's appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> I should say anything, anything family-friendly. Yes. Well. And also next week, we hopefully we'll have uh, your report from Amiga 32. You've got a bit of audio when you're out there? You need to go through it all? Well, there's a lot of people that have been there. You know, Frank Geisler, who used to run uh, Commodore Germany. They've yeah. got Jeff Porter. They've got um, RJ Michael. You know, there's quite a lot of people. So You need to go through all it. your audio and see who you got then. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so hopefully next week, we're going to have Rabbi's little show report from Amiga 32 and his trip to Amsterdam if uh, he remembered to press record in Amsterdam. <laughs> you spent a bit too long in that cafe, didn't you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so hopefully that'll be coming up on next week's show, guys. Thank you for checking out episode 95. We'll see you again next Friday. Ciao. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is time to welcome this week's very special guest. Thank you for joining us, Romeo Knight. Welcome to the show. Nice having me. Thank you. No problem at all. Now, um, we're going to get some really cool stories, I'm sure, from uh, your demo scene days and lots of those amazing music tracks that you worked on throughout the years. What we always like to do, though, is um, go all the way back to the start, and it would be quite nice to find out your first ever computer experience. Where where did it all start for you, then? The very first ever was the VCS 2600. Atari. Um, yeah, that was, I mean, that was gaming, um, but that was actually the first thing I've ever saw. But my very first uh, own computer was a C128. My my um, parents thought um, because of the CPM mode, they would uh, give me some, some serious computer um, system, you know, n- nothing for gaming. But of course, I only used it in the C64 mode. What kind of stuff were you doing on your 128 then? I just did the usual stuff, um, like uh, copying games and um, swapping them on uh, the uh, school in the school. Of course, when um, I, I heard the tunes of Rob Hubbard, Rob Hubbard is my uh, my great idol, and uh, actually Chris Hulsbeck. Um, and after I, you know, when I came back home from school, I, I didn't put uh, on any vinyls or. Uh, listen to uh, actual music, but I was um, uh, putting on uh, some music collections on the uh, C64, and then I was listening to this kind of music. Yeah, and that was the the uh, the point when I decided I need to do this myself. Oh, did you have any uh, background in music, like uh, notation or any learning of instruments? Or? Actually, yes. Um, uh, I I learned classical clarinet. Yeah, I was even playing in the um, in a youth symphony orchestra. I don't know if this was of any help because um, for, for me, this is a, a totally different chapter of of, uh, of understanding music at all. Um, some, I mean, the, the theory helped a little bit later on, but uh, apart from that, um, it's, I, I think reproducing music, uh, sheet music, is really something else. It's, it's nothing you can actually relate to composing, in, in my opinion. I, I mean, that's... My my own experience, at least. Was it was it kind of a hard learning process um, to start using that early software? Not really, um, because I was young. Actually, um, I was I tried to do assembler programming as well, um, but um, 
<laughs> I think I wasn't smart enough, so I, I stayed with the music. Because we had Rob Hubbard on our show a few few weeks ago, and he was talking about how we used to make those songs and like typing them into you know machine code essentially on the on the C sixty four. It's like that was mind blowing that he did that. Yeah, yeah, that that would have uh, wouldn't have been possible for me actually. So um, Chris Hulsbeck um, and Rob Hubbard was the the duo that made it possible for me actually. <laughs> well, you started making music and uh, how did you choose your name then Romeo Knight it was in I think in 1987 or 1988 I was very much into hip-hop music at that time and there was some really not well-known uh, hip-hop band called Boogie Boys and um, they had an album out that was called Romeo Knight and I liked that album uh, that much uh, that I thought I need to uh, Make this my handle. I, I had a few tunes with uh, with this voice sample, Romeo Knight, you know, and uh, that came from that actual album. So was it mainly hip hop that you were into then, as a kid and a teenager, or were there, were there other styles that you liked? Basically, hip hop and uh, synth pop, uh, electronic music. Well, obviously, you know, when we got into the late 80s, kind of the, the Commodore 64 and the 8-bit kind of scene, you know, obviously transitioned into the 16-bit machines. What, do you remember when you first saw an Amiga and what you thought of that system? I don't really quite remember. Um, I just, at, at some point I knew um, I, I, need, I needed to have one, of course, because this was the logical uh, step further. I think there were one or two friends at school who had one before. And I think I was one of the very uh, first guys who, who got the Amiga 500 because um, that was the affordable machine then. I think it was like uh, 1,300 uh, Deutschmarks at still, that time. Still quite expensive, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, the, the, the C64 was like 800 or 900 yeah. um, when it came out in Germany, I think. Did you save up yourself then, or did your parents help, or did you work? Or? That was, I don't remember, actually. <laughs> but I, I remember um, buying it at some, some kind of um, a store t together with my mom back then. <laughs> Well, did you have any uh, kind of particular demos that really influenced you or how did you get involved in that whole demo scene? Good question, but a really, really difficult question as well, because I don't quite remember. I knew some guys from school who were into demo scene, who um, knew that I was doing music for myself uh, at Amiga um, that was Agisonics uh, right before uh, the trackers were out at all. And um, they, yeah, they, they knew some people uh, and I got in touch with them and uh, I was able to provide music for them. So that was uh, the way I got into demo scene. Not actually about demos at all. I know um, I watched those, those early demos, but um, I was always interested in making music, not actually making music for demos. So it, it just kind of happened that they got put on the demos. <laughs> Quite like this, yes. <laughs> I was, I mean, I was happy to to uh, see them uh, being used in the demo, but I was uh, doing them anyway. There was not really a relation. Uh, like uh, I, I got an order, you you know, we need uh, music for this or that demo. Uh, never happened like this, actually. Uh, maybe once or twice, but um, basically, um, you know, I was um, meeting with Irata um, the day or the other one of the the very early founders of uh, red sector here in my hometown Düsseldorf in germany and um I, I i met with him and i gave him like the modules i i made and he gave me new new games new discs and this is <laughs> how it happened so you um kind of decided to 
pick your genre, how was that done? Because uh, in demo music, there's a lot of different genres, like, you know, chip music, there's kind of really dancey, ravey stuff, and a lot of your stuff had kind of real instruments in it and um, real kind of sounds. There's so many different uh, styles I think I made because... Um, I just wanted, when the Amiga came out and um, you were allowed to do samples, um, you know, I, I, um, I ripped samples from other tunes I loved, of course. Um, I sampled um, my own stuff from, from vinyls, from synthesizer w later on when I had synthesizers. So um, it wa was all some kind of mashup of, of everything. If you're relating to um, stuff like uh, the RSI Heart um module for for instance which was released in the um red sector mega demo the with the uh, guitar samples that was um, a friend of mine who was playing guitar at the time and i just let him play samples for me so they were actually um tailored for for this uh when i listen to it uh, nowadays it sounds really awkward to me because um, so many samples are out of tune <laughs> <laughs> what was your hardware setup then um what kind of sampler did you use back then um, the uh, Deluxe Sampler was it uh, called, I think. Ah, was that Deluxe with... Sound? Deluxe Sounds. Deluxe Sound was the. It was just a small plastic box uh, with a with an input, and that's it. And where did you um, source your samples? Then was it just like stuff around the house, or did you get them on discs? Or I, I ripped other other modules like any other musician did. I um, sampled from tapes and uh, vinyls I, I loved. For example, if you, um, some 12 inch records with remixes on the backside, you often had um, parts where some uh, instruments were uh, separated from yeah. others. So you could use them for, for your own uh, stuff. So you'd be kind of listening to a record and then you'd hear just a gap with one instrument and you'd go, ah, I need to sample that and try and remember the exactly. record. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> when did you eventually get into like a group then? Yeah, that yeah, I don't know. That was when when the music was released. They already said, okay, when your music is in this demo, you're part of the group. And I've been to later on. Um, I've been to some events um, with the guys I knew, uh, and I think that was was fun. But um, you know, at that time, I was like lots of us. We were socially um, not so. <laughs> Um, well, a little bit impaired. Uh, I don't know how, how you call it. Uh, uh, socially awkward. So <laughs> if I went to one event, that was enough uh, for two years. So, Well, yeah. a lot of your tunes would also be copied uh, by other people and put onto crack trows and tons of different Amiga-related things. So um, did you kind of ever get a game? put the crack in and then go, oh, this is my tune. Or know of your friends that had kind of had copies and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think in one or two occasions. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, there was some really good tracks, like uh, one particular beat to a pulp. Uh, what was the kind of process of going around making that tune? I'm sorry, but I don't remember. I just remember after switching to Amiga from the C64, I actually didn't want to do any more uh, chip tunes um, and i remember that somebody uh really asked for it and wanted a chip tune and I, I i did two chip tunes on amiga because i was asked for 
but uh, I really didn't like the process of doing it. And <laughs> that's extremely funny because that uh, uh, cream of the earth uh, is the one and beat to the pulp is the, the other one I'm, uh, yeah, I'm constantly uh, connected with. So. And the ones that you don't like doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, not cream of the earth, but uh, those two chip tunes, beat to the pipe. What was the other one called? Um, I, I chose those strange names. They are basically all um, lines from uh, from hip hop uh, uh, albums. Yeah, cream of the earth and uh, uh, is um, is a line from uh, Public Enemy from one, one song of Public Enemy. Enemy. Well, you mentioned uh, kind of the process of making it then, and uh, what would you say was your favorite tracker or, or piece of software to create music then? Noise tracker, I don't know which revision. Uh, noise tracker, basically. I, um, the, after noise tracker, there was not nothing more uh, coming out that was changing the, the game, you know? Noise tracker was a change in the game, but um, with all the effects you could apply um, compared to the, the early sound tracker version, but afterwards, you had those uh, Hultzbeck thing with uh, eight channels. I remember trying out to do uh, a module on it, but uh, I really hated the sound and I, I didn't even, even finish it. I mean, was your main system an A500 then? Did you stick with that? And uh, did you get any like, extras for it? I had the 500 with uh, one, one megabyte, of course, with uh, the fast memory and an additional uh, uh, disk drive so I could copy better. Nice. I, I didn't even have uh, some, some kind of sound outboard equipment. I had the, the, um, the two outputs. People often say they were stereo, but they aren't. They had two mono outputs with two hardwired uh, channels each. each. I had the, like an, a Y cable connected it to the, the mono speaker of my, my uh, display monitor, and that's all I had for, for sound. That was a, a, a tiny built-in speaker of the, the display. That's that's why it probably sounds so good if you're using a Mega monitor, because uh, it was built on actually, that. Oh, it, actually, it was the C128 monitor. Oh, nice. <laughs> well, I've noticed that you do live performances. So you've done a live performance with a band at Breakpoint of your kind of original tunes. How was the process of that? Uh, I think... Like in 1993, 1994, I, de I decided I didn't want to do any computer music anymore because there was no um, progress, you know. I, I needed a new system. I, I needed new stuff to do. And I, I got synthesizers in the meantime, and I did stuff on the synthesizers. I, I wasn't able to, to focus on the music uh, instead of, you know, using all the new options I got. I started uh, learning guitar, self-taught, and um, I play, played in several uh, bands. I think that was in 2007 when um, Xerxes, also known as uh, Klaus Lunde, uh, a Norwegian demo scene composer, contacted me about, um, yeah, he wanted to play live and, and um, told me it was a great thing to have like a guitar player at his side. And then I, I think I basically had one, one week to prepare and uh, this was how um, the, the first concert happened at Breakpoint 2008. I mean, 2007 and 2008 was some kind of demo scene comeback because I, I really had nothing to do with the whole scene since 1994. When you left the demo scene, um, you kind of went into music and uh, uh, commercial titles for games such as uh, Dynablaster and Nectris. 
What was the difference? That, yeah, no, 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 that was still during my demo scene time, actually. Um, that was due to people I, I got uh, known uh, through uh, my demo scene fame. Sorry. Um, and uh, that was fun doing so, but um, I don't know. I was... I didn't see the bigger picture, you know. I've, I was bored by doing music on the computer with four channels. I wanted to do real music, you know. And I even abandoned my Amiga. I didn't have a computer for a few years. Well, you mentioned guitar there as well, and you also did some tracks for the um, Turrican anthology. Yeah, that was much later. I think that was like in 2013. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that was with Chris Holzbeck as well. I was really lucky to um, to meet him at uh, uh, Evoke, actually, in um, uh, Evoke demo party a few years ago. And we had just some loose contact uh, on, on Facebook, you know, like uh, how it is. Yeah. And um, when he was starting this uh, his, his project, uh, his Turrican anthology, he just asked me if I could do some, some tracks for him. And I was, uh, yeah, that was a big thing to, for me because... Uh, I would have paid money <laughs> to do so. Well, with the kind of guy that influenced you, you know, you, you end up self-taught playing guitar on his tracks. Yeah, it was really fun. Actually, I did uh, a lot of uh, hired guitar, hired uh, hired guitar work for um, some other scene guys before, uh, because I just liked to 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 play guitar on on other guy, uh, people's uh, music. Because composing is sometimes can be um, a hard task. Can be tedious if you, if you don't find the direction you 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 like to have, uh, and playing for other guys uh, only as a instrumentalist is something else. Well, I'm quite curious to go you know back going back to the 90s again. I mean, when um, obviously the RSI Mega Demo was such a huge demo on the Amiga, and you know there would be like a lot of co local computer shops would actually use that to show the power of the Amiga system to people that might buy yeah. it. I mean, did you kind of know how popular it was at the time? Obviously, this was kind of like pre-internet. I mean, did you know the effect that it had on people? Not at all. Not at all. I, I found out um, when I came back to the scene, like, like uh, 2008. I've been to one big demo party. I think that was the party in Denmark, 1992 or 1993, something like that. I can barely remember what we did there. Um, however, I was attending as an artist in uh, 2008 to play live with uh, Xerxes and Bendik. And when I came into that hall and people, I mean, there, there have been people who, who knew how I looked and they, they stepped up to me and then they fell on their knees and um, that was a really really weird moment for me it took a long time for me to realize that uh, i i was some kind of music idol i it's really hard <laughs> for me to let it flow through my lips actually because i think it's a real weird thing to say but um this happened at a few other occasions later on as well so that's well, when i realized okay there must be something to it <laughs> <laughs> I think you really helped define a sound with the kind of slack bass and all the kind of crazy samples. I think I was lucky. I was there at the right time and uh, the, the stuff I did wasn't too bad. So somehow uh, it worked out, you know. I mean, talking about Red Sector, I mean, obviously they're regarded as like, you know, one of the legendary um, Amiga demo scene groups. Um, have you got like kind of any memories from like you know your, your time with them, or did you go to any parties with those guys? What, what were they kind of like? 
I rarely were to some some gatherings or stuff like that. Uh, I had one one close guy. His his name was Guy Hawk back then, but he was not really into Red Sector. Um, he was in some kind of other group that was just people uh, in my hometown. I, I was connected to them, you know, and uh, I didn't really care if they are part of Red Sector or not. I've been to a Red War party, as far as I remember, that was that was my very first party at all. You know, I was like 16, 17, 18 years old, and I enjoyed boozing with some guys I liked. I think alcohol went around a lot of those demo parties, didn't it? A lot of underage drinking, yeah. from what I heard. <laughs> yes, definitely, yeah. Uh, I have to say, really, when I came, came back to the, the scene, um, those huge parties I, I was at, like, Breakpoint and Revision, I was astonished. So much booze and still so friendly people. And um, I think you don't have it anywhere at all. Like if you go, I mean, if you go to a football game, there is booze as well, but the people aren't friendly. And um, this is something else. It's I really love to be part of this community. Yeah, there's no Amiga Atari fights going on or anything. Well, there is, but it's only for fun. <laughs> yeah. Are there any tunes that you kind of would love to remix today or any of your tunes that you'd love to get remixed? Oh, there's loads of uh, C64 tunes I'd love to remix, but I really don't find the time anymore because there are so many other projects going on. I'd love to do uh, uh, a remix album of my, my own tracks, when there is time, I will do it. I even started a remix on Cream of the Earth years, many years ago, but I wasn't able to complete it yet. Uh, would you ever consider doing, oh, you know, Romeo Night Kickstarter? For, uh, I don't think like so. A, because a album I, or I, yeah, I do music in my free time. Maybe it's a bit bold to say, but I, I wouldn't need the money for it because when I do it in my free time, uh, it's my choice and my fun. And I, I wouldn't ask people to give me money for it, actually. I would like them to to drop like two euros on an album on Bandcamp. That's uh, that's enough. I will do uh, a remix album of my only maybe only a P, just like five or six tracks. But I will do it at some point. I'm uh, pretty sure. You ended up making your own kind of studio then. That's right. That's already 17 years ago, and uh, but. It's not a music studio. We are, um, I, I found a studio with a few partners and we're doing um, commercials, uh, post-production for um, TV commercials and voiceover recordings, uh, stuff like that. So it's something totally different. But um, I mean, music is more, is of course, more where my heart is. But uh, on the other hand, uh, I know a few... Um, composers who uh, compose for for clients and uh maybe that's even worse because you have have to sell uh, the stuff you're doing and you have sometimes to do stuff you actually don't like maybe it's better to do music in your free time to to really feel uh free as an artist and not to be uh dependent on on the money the client uh pays you for the music you know well when you rediscovered like the demo scene i mean did you kind of did you ever appreciate kind of, you know, the, the the influence that you had on people back in the day, or when when you kind of got back into it? Did you were you surprised that it was still so big and people still remembered it? Yeah, b- both of it. I was surprised it was so big. I was surprised it was so well organized. Everything around it. Um, I was not really surprised, but I, I loved um, the 
people who are really great friends in the demo scene, friends from other countries. I only see once a year, for example, but they're really friends. And I love the idea of, of this limitless art explosion, you know? People do stuff because they want to do and nothing else. That's, that's, it's real art. It, it doesn't uh, any other um, target, you know? Just be art for the art itself. And it's the, 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 the most the pure kind of art you can have. What do you think then when you look back at those old demos all this time on, when you see them again? I mean, does it kind of took on the heartstrings? Does it bring nostalgia flooding back? Does it make you feel like, you know, you're, you're a teenager again? How does it make you feel? Yeah, the the typical nostalgia feeling, um, it, it comes up, it comes up, but not by listening to my own stuff or watching my own demos, but uh, stuff by others. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I could tell you a few tunes, not really demos, but a few tunes. I, I liked, I really loved that, um, uh, was it uh, Jester? Jester tune in that one demo, I, I don't remember the name of, which uh, I, I was in contact with him uh, and he told me he, uh, he was influenced by me doing that. And I remember watching that demo and listening to the tune. I, and I was really like, why didn't I do that one? That's so great, you know? <laughs> yeah, he's got some fantastic so it, stuff. It's, re it's, really, it's really great how, how people influence each other. And it, it becomes a circle <laughs> in the end. Well, hopefully we'll see you at so a few. Um, have you got any demo party appearances coming up then? Do you still like get involved in them? Um, that's classified. Oh. I, <laughs> <laughs> well, it'd be amazing to see you at some. Because I know the, I mean, demo parties now probably like, you know, pretty much bigger than they have been in decades, aren't they now? The, the prizes, right. Yeah. yeah um, well, there's um, one exception, actually, when we won the World of Commodore uh, demo competition 1990. Yeah. yeah, it was 1992, as far as I remember. Uh, that was an official competition organized by Commodore itself. We won that one with the Wicked Sensation demo, and uh, our prize was a, was a car, uh, Seat Ibiza. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and, um, well, we were four or five guys, and um, we, of course, we couldn't use the car, so we um, were actually able to, to change it to, um, to high-end Amigas at that time. So I, I got an Amiga 4000, which was um, about 4,000 euros worth, uh, not uh, Deutschmark worth at that time, I've, as far as I remember, but yeah. I could be wrong. They were expensive machines, weren't they? It was a lot of money back then. I, I didn't have need for an Amiga 4000 because it only had four channels like the 500. <laughs> yeah, I guess for sound <laughs> it was no different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that was not no improvement for me. So I sold it to some kind of graphics guy who had actually used for that kind of uh, high-end computer. Well, Romeo, it's been great getting your stories and, uh, you know, reminiscing with you about those demo scene days. It's great that you've still got a passion for it as well, and hopefully we will see you at some future events or some future productions. I, I'm just a lover of the art. No matter if it's uh, other people or mine, um, I create for, for the art itself. So, And the demo scene is the ideal place to do so, and that's why I'm there, and that's why I will stay there, and all the other reasons uh, I already told you. And, uh, of course, boozing. <laughs> That's always a good uh, appeal, isn't it? Always a good draw. Yeah, I had that uh, one of those um, Magnum bottles of Desperados just right now here. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, that 0.7 uh, bottles. Uh, nice one for this kind of long interview. Oh, we're drinking coffee. You should have got involved. <laughs> <laughs> well, Romeo, thank you so much for joining us. It's been lovely talking to you. Great. Uh, it was a huge fun to do. So what are you currently working on then? Okay, and the unimportant things at first. Um, we, With my band Samsara Circle, we just re released uh, an album 
which is um, very well received uh, from the press. So uh, go over to Bandcamp and uh, put in Samsara Circle. If you like metal, this is good metal stuff. More important, um, I'm, I'm working on a game soundtrack right now for a mobile game. I'm actually in, involved in the um, uh, company uh, that's over there in, in Japan with uh, two really, really nice uh, demo scene guys. It's called Crystal Clash, and you can download it at uh, Play Store or at, uh, um, how's the Apple stuff called? I don't know. Well, the, <laughs> the App, app Store. App store yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the App Store. <laughs> and um, take a look at it. Um, there will be uh, many, many updates. Download this game, and if you like to play uh, good uh, action puzzlers, you will see more games with my soundtracks in it.